Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And in this episode, I'll be finishing up my thoughts on Tell My Horse by Zora Neale Hurston. And this won't take too long. Um, You know, I talked about the first half of the novel. I talked about its context, uh, you know, what Zora Neale Hurston was trying to get after. Now, this book is usually seen as her voodoo book and the book really about about voodoo and to be fair more than half the bulk of the book deals with the traditions of voodoo but a lot of that are pictures a lot she took i think about 30 pictures um that are included in here which is a really nice um it's nice that the library of america ensure that that those photos were in because they were taken by zora neale hurston herself um you know i found the first half maybe a little bit more interesting from my perspective as a historian as it does try to get into the history uh, of the Caribbean, particularly Jamaica and Haiti, its future, its current crises. You know, we got a lot about colonialism and we get a lot of, you know, some hints into Hurston's politics in that she's not primarily out to blame white people for the problems in the Caribbean or, or, or even blame empire, although she acknowledges empire's existence. She has a broader analysis and I think it's a useful perspective that 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 should be looked at and, and considered when you look at the history of the Caribbean, if you're interested in that sort of thing. Um, the last over half of the book, though, is called Voodoo, and it deals with religion in Haiti, particularly Voodoo. And she takes Voodoo very, very seriously. We saw that in Mules and Men, but she does even more here, where she sees this as a living tradition that's meaningful for the people that, that are there. Now, maybe this is second nature now, although... You know, voodoo still has become kind of schlocky in pop culture and how people usually think of voodoo. They think of the zombies. They think of witchcraft. They think of, of weird rituals or, you know, or sometimes they confuse it with Santeria and other new religious movements. So I think there's a general kind of ignorance about voodoo that's real. And um, but nevertheless, I think people have a little bit, in, you know, these people who study it. People look at it, have a more nuanced view of voodoo than people did in the 1930s when Zora Neale Hurston wrote that. Um, but, you know, you look at movies like Angel Heart, you look at, um, you know, other depictions of, of voodooism and Caribbean zombies, you still get, I think, a kind of sensationalist account. And Zora Neale Hurston wants to take this tradition seriously. She wants to um, understand it fully. She doesn't want to just um, disregard it as as crazy rituals or crazy beliefs you know she thinks this is a true living tradition and and something really meaningful to the people in in haiti and i think she succeeds in doing that if nothing else she's one of the first people uh not only like like with mules and men how she was the first black person to write about african-american folklore right people have write, written before and you could take charles chestnut and throw him in there and say well he wrote about it but he wrote about it from the point of view of fiction or writing fictions earl hurston wrote an objective case uh, you know description of black folklore in mules and men and she's doing the same thing here in the caribbean and i, I don't know if she's the first you know she probably probably not i mean there's there's a, 
probably many black people who wrote about these traditions in, in Haiti. But, um, you know, she's bringing something new to her audiences in, in the United States, I think, and does it in a very sympathetic way, in a way that's respectful and, and accurate as most much as she's able. And she also takes part in these traditions, just like in Mules and Men, where she heard the stories, she experienced them as a living tradition. She experienced American manifestations of voodoo by actually living through it and doing it. Um, and she does the same thing here. She actually goes to these places. She talks to these people. She witnesses the rituals. Now, a lot of the book is just long descriptions of ceremonies, rituals, prayers, um, you know, even there's sections on actual the potions that are used, the, the actual science behind some of the, the medicines that get developed through, through, through voodoo. So there's not that much to maybe say about that part of it. At least I'm, I'm not sure I want to go that deeply into trying to dissect all of that. Just to say much of the bulk of this is, is ethnographic descriptions of, of these traditions. I think it's, um, I think it's a worthy uh, part of the story. And I, and I think it's historically relevant being when it came out, when it was written at a time when most people really had very, very superficial or very pulpy, pulp fiction kind of views of what voodoo voodoo is, right? And that's all I thought when I grew up even in the in the 80s. That's what voodoo was. Voodoo was, you know, the doll, right? The voodoo doll. That's That's what we thought of it. But, you know, obviously it's a real religion. That has a history that has you know a, that's it's a living tradition and it has to be studied that way so anyways that's what we get um how many chapters is this section i think um eight chapters maybe yeah eight chapters in the second half of of tell my horse all dealing in various with voodoo and then you have another appendix just like you did with the mules and men while the mules and men appendix had a lot of um u.s black um music and some other kind of voodoo stuff in there this appendix is largely creole songs right and of course creole is the language of the of the masses in haiti french more the language of the elite i think she talked about in the first part of the novel sorry not the novel the first part of the book you know how there's kind of a class division and there's some debate about what should be the national language of Haiti. Some people advocating Creole, language of the people. Others advocating French as a more, I guess, in from some people's point of view, maybe a more high class, respectable um, language. Um, anyways, um, jumping into this book, uh, chapter 10. This is chapter 10 of the whole Tell My Horse. That's where it begins. Um, it's called Voodoo and Voodoo Gods. And here's our, her introduction to, to Haitian voodoo. And she deals right away with, with the superficial representations of voodoo and the way that people just sort of disregard it. Quote, some of the other educated, uh, uh, some of the other men of education in Haiti who have given time to the study of voodoo, esoterics, do not see such deep meaning in voodoo practices. They see only a pagan religion with an African pantheon. And right there, let it be said that the Haitian gods, Mysteries or Lawa, um, those are the gods, um, are not the Catholic calendar of saints done over in black, as has been stated by casual observers. This has been said over and over in print because the adepts have been, have been seen buying the lithographs of saints. But this is done because they wish some visual representation of the invisible ones. 
And as yet, no Haitian artist has given them an interpretation or concept of the, of the loa. But even the most illiterate peasant knows that the picture of the saint is only an approximation of the loa. In proof of this, most of the hugans, which are kind of like the priests, require those who place themselves under the tutelage in order to become a hutsi, to become the composition book of notes. And in this, they must copy the hugan's concept of the loa. And I have seen several of these books with drawings, and none of them ever pretend to look like Catholic saints. Neither are they attributed to the same. End quote. So she's introducing this concept of the loa, and I'm not sure how that's pronounced. L-O-A is its spelling. Lo, loa, loa, I think. Um, but these are, are kind of the spirits in, in the voodoo tradition. The gods, the voodoo gods, that's what she calls her title uh, of this. But I think there's something else in here in that she doesn't want, she's sick of white people interpreting their religion through Christian uh, a Christian gaze or through a white person's gaze, right? And that's what it is. Like, oh, those are saints. Oh, that's uh, a prayer. And that happens with a lot of religions. I mean, when people look at a religion, they say, oh, that's a baptism, right? Or or that's a, that's a prayer. And they're just sort of, or that's a concept of sin. Like, do the Buddhists have a concept of sin? You know, I, you know, that's a Christian concept, though. You can't really ask that question fairly being authentic to the religion. But we, we, we always look at kind of cultures, other cultures through our own um, cultural biases and, and, and beliefs. And she's trying to warn not to do that with voodoo. Don't just assume it as a bastardized form of Christianity. And that means don't see these as saints. They're, they're something else. And that's what she kind of seeks out trying to describe here in this chapter. She mentions three uh, gods in particular, three loa. Um, Dambala, pronounced Wedo. So, um, oh, so Dambala Wedo is... is there's two names. There's a first and last name to it. But usually just um, Dambala is how it's usually addressed. It's the highest and most powerful of the gods, to use Zora Neale Hurston's actual words. But never is referred to as the father of the gods, as with Jupiter, Odin, or the great Zeus. And while he was not spoken of as the father of gods, whenever the other gods meet, they bow themselves and sing. And right here again, we have the warning, don't just assume this is the voodoo version of Zeus. Or the, ver the you know... It, it has a different concept and different meaning. So that's the highest god. Um, then we have uh, Urzuli Frida. This is like the feminine god. Many traditions have a, a, a god that's gendered female. You know, that's like Hinduism has that. Um, you know, Shinto has a lot of feminized deities. The monotheistic traditions don't, but the polytheistic traditions all have these feminine deities. And this is a, a kind of a there one of the feminine deities in in the voodoo tradition. Uh, something very interesting about her, though. Listen to this quote: Ursuline is said to be a beautiful young woman of lush appearance. She is a mulatto, and when she is impersonated by the blacks, they powder their face with talcum. She is represented as having firm, full breasts and other perfect female attributes. She is a rich young woman and wears a gold ring on her finger with a stone in it. She also wears a gold chain around her neck, attires herself in beautiful, expensive raiment, and sheds intoxicating odors from her person. To men, she is gorgeous, gracious, and beneficent. She promotes the advancement of her devotees and looks after their welfare generally. She comes to them in radiant ecstasy every Thursday and Saturday night and claims them." End quote. So a lot there about class and race, kind of under the surface there, it seems. Um, you know, um, obviously, I think I talked elsewhere in this podcast um, about the, the color line in the Caribbean a little bit and, and what that meant for women and how women were perceived and classed and identified in the Caribbean. And certainly they kind of come together there in this depiction of this, of this God.
Um, the third one she mentions, I mean, she goes through different rituals for these gods, prayers. Um, but I'm most interested here in the description of who these gods are. Uh, the last one that she talks about here is Papa Legba Atabon. And this is the god of the gate, the gatekeeping god. And uh, we get some of his songs as well. And that, that ends the chapter. So this chapter is really a description of these three different deities. And her effort is to warn us not to just assume that these are uh, voodoo versions of, of, of white people's gods, I guess. Uh, not much, too much to say about chapter 11, Isle de la Gonave. It's just a, a location. She only spends a few pages on it, talks about some of the things that happen there. A little bit on empire kind of under the surface there as in all these books, but or, or in all of this book. Um, but uh, yeah, not much there. Uh, chapter 12, though, is a little bit more important. This one is called Achahai and what it means. Now, Achahai is a place in in Haiti, which is kind of like the center of voodooism and voodoo in, in Haiti. It's kind of like, um, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to make the comparison because Zorni Hutchins doesn't want me to do it. I was going to say something like the the you know, like the Rome of, of voodoo, but uh, that that would have Zorniel Hurston wouldn't allow me to say something like that. So forget I even it even popped into my head. Um, but it is the center of voodoo in Haiti. Now it's a long chapter, and mostly it deals with different rituals. Um, so that's like a lot of the book, and we got a lot of pictures here too. Uh, I think about ten pictures are in this chapter, and they're all really interesting. They're actual practitioners uh, of of voodoo priests. Uh, doing different um, various rituals. Great stuff. Um, yeah, but most of the chapter describes some of these these different rituals. Um, here, I'll give you a bit of a quote. It was then that the thing of terror happened. There were some odd noises from a human throat somewhere in the crowd behind me. Instantly, the triumphant feeling left the place and was succeeded by one of fear. A man was possessed, it seemed, and began crashing things and people as he cavorted towards the center of things. There was a whisper that an evil spirit had materialized, and from appearances this might well have been true. For the face of the man had lost itself in a horrible mask. It was unbelievable in its frightfulness. But that was not all. A feeling had entered the place. It was a feeling of ordinary... It was a feeling of unspeakable evil, a menace that could not be recognized by ordinary human fears. And the remarkable thing was that everyone seemed to feel it simultaneously and recoiled from it, from it, from the bearer of it, like a wheat field before the wind. And actually, possession shows up quite a lot in this, this chapter. Really long, but again, a lot of it are, are pictures. Um, you know, actually, she describes the theology of possession, how it's actually done, the rituals surrounding it, uh, how the possessions are, are fulfilled and and achieved um yeah again I, i'm not quite sure what to say about the detail here but this is really chock full of just just different um descriptions of, of, of various rituals all of it very fascinating it's really good read um i i encourage it now chapter 13 is what everyone's waiting for in a way this is her description of zombies um and she knows zombies are kind of like the center of what people think about when they think about voodoo. And, and I think that's, that's, um, 
still probably true. They got the voodoo doll and you got zombies. And, and these are what people pop into people's head when they think about voodoo. Um, now, this has been interpreted, of course, many different ways by psychologists, by doctors, by historians, uh, religious studies people. And, you know, I haven't read a bunch of the stuff. But uh, one thing that comes up a lot when people talk about zombies, of course, is the master-slave relationship. Because these aren't obviously the, the 20th century style like Romero zombies uh, that, that are in 20th century American pop culture. You know, the mindless infected that just eat people or eat brains or whatever. The cannibal cannibalism. And, you know, we could do a whole side series on the depictions of zombies in, in American pop culture. Uh, and it's an expression of those anxieties that are alive and well in the United States. And what are the major tensions in Haiti, class, race, the legacy of slavery. Things are Neil Hirschner already talked about in part one of this book, in part two of this book. So we're not surprised then, we shouldn't be, that the master-slave relationship emerges as a very, very key feature of how she describes um, zombies. Um, even in how zombies are understood by different classes. Quote, uh, no one can stay in Haiti long without hearing zombies mentioned in one way or another. And the fear of this thing and all that it could mean steeped over the country like a ground current of cold air. This fear is real and deep. It is more like a group of fears. For there in the outspoken fear among the peasants of the world of the, is the, of the work of the zombies. Sit in a marketplace and pass a day with the market women and notice how often some vendues cries out that a zombie with an invisible hand has flitched for money or her goods. The upper class fear too, but they do not talk quite openly as do the poor. But to them, this is a horrible possibility. Think of the fiendishness of the thing. It is not good for a person who has lived all his life surrounded by a degree of fastidious culture, loved to his last breath by families and friends, to contemplate the probability of being a resurrected body or is a resurrected body being dragged from a vault. The best of love and means could provide and set to toiling ceaselessly in the banana fields, working like a beast, unclothed like a beast, and like a brute, crouching in some foul den for a few hours, allowed for food and rest. And go, it's describing slavery directly. That is the, the zombie is the slave. And that is, of course, central to the Haitian experience, central to their revolution. It's central to their culture. Um, and it's not surprising then that that's a central part of the folklore and the religion of, of Haiti, at least this aspect of, of, of the religion. So, yes, the master-slave relationship is key to how we must understand and interpret the Haitian zombie. And I think Zora Neale Hurston, uh, I don't know if she's the first to say that, but she certainly makes it clear here. Um, now, be, above and beyond just her overall introduction to, to zombies, she gives many case studies. Um, and she takes these serious. I mean, she doesn't lay any doubt that this stuff is... She doesn't try to lead to naturalistic explanations as a psychologist or a physician might she's interested in the folklore and the religion as it's as a living tradition and so she just takes it um on face value and she takes what she hears at face value um including a story of a woman who apparently had been dead for 29 years and shows up walking naked in the streets all right now i have a hard time believing that this could happen but uh you know people disappear people come back i guess um i don't know what's happening here but i'm just struck that zorniel hurston doesn't She's just very matter-of-fact about it. Um, she just leaves it as a question. She doesn't say, there must be a natural explanation for this. She just says, well, no one knows, and I don't know either. Quote, how did this woman, supposedly dead for 29 years, come to be wandering naked on a road? Nobody will tell me knows. 
The secret is that some boker dead or alive. Sometimes a missionary converts one of those bokers and he gives up all his paraphernalia to the church and frees his captives if he has any. They're not free publicly, you understand. Because that would bring down the vengeance of the community upon his head. Um, later on, uh, back to race and slavery. Zombies are wanted for more use besides field work. They are reputedly used as sneak thieves. A market woman cry out continually that little zombies are stealing their changing goods. Um, various, various stories. So, um... That's a chapter you want to read if you want to know what she has to say about um, voodoo zombies. It's, it's, of course, uh, one reason why people come to this book. Um, chapter 14 is called Sect Rouge, and it's about secret societies. And again, class becomes a very, very key feature in how secret societies manifest in Haiti. We have um, uh, working class secret societies, and we have elite secret societies. And I was, I was rereading this. I had read this years ago. Uh, I was thinking of Brian Palmer's book. I much have mentioned this before in the podcast, but if you're just joining us, uh, and you probably forgot anyways, even if you had it, uh, this book is called Cultures of Darkness. It was written about 20 years ago now by a labor historian named Brian Palmer. I think he's up in Canada somewhere. And it's simply one of my favorite books about um, working class culture. And it looks at um, cultures of darkness, looks at cultures of the night. And it looks at the night itself as a space, as a time, I guess, as a time and a space of, of alternatives and potentialities. And she, he, he looks at things like witchcraft. He looks at uh, gangster subcultures of the night. He looks at jazz. He looks at uh, carnival, uh, very, you know, Venetian masquerades, all these things in which the conventional rules of social order are cast away and replaced with something much more liberatory. Um, both in good and bad. I mean, he even throws the fascist knight in there as a as kind of a, or the clan or groups like this. But the idea here is that there are secret, you know, secret societies are real and meaningful elements of working class culture. And and I think Zorniel Hurston realizes that as well in the way she describes these, these cult, these secret societies. But I'm struck by the kind of the dialectical nature of it, that when the working class people create secret societies, the elite respond with their own versions of these various societies um chapter 15 is called uh parler cheval ou uh which translates as tell my horse i think from the creole and this is a discussion of, of one god named uh Gwede, who is kind of the god of the common people and tell my horse is actually part of the prayers of the rituals that people engage in when praying to this this god. So again, class becomes a very very important feature of of, of voodoo, as described by Zora Neale Hurston here. Um, chapter sixteen is called what is it? Graveyard dirt and other poisons. This is the closest Zora Neale Hurston gets to any attempt at kind of a naturalistic explanation. Of, of voodoo she actually goes through some of the potions and magical uh, magical potions or medicines that voodoo uh, creates and you know the origin of some of these things um, some of it is that it's claimed to be like leopard le like leopard fur and it's actually just horse fur things like that but she tries to ground this in in the real like recipes of things the same thing she did in mules and men when she looked at uh, U.S. versions of of voodoo, and then that leaves just chapter seven, 
14, which is called Dr. Ressar. And this, uh, and this is just, uh, he, she closes the book with a vignette about uh, a major priest. Uh, 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 Hugan, Hugan is, is what they're called, these voodoo priests. But he's a, uh, he's a well-known and kind of famous Hugan. That's, that's kind of even internationally famous. Kind of the, He's the one that tourists go to see if they want to see um, voodoo. So that's how the book ends. And then there's an appendix with all these Creole songs, which I think for the time was maybe one of the only collections of, of Creole songs that would have been available to people in the United States. Uh, so it's kind of an important contribution. Now, I, I searched some of these and I couldn't really find um, too much just searching on YouTube. So, um, you know, we got the music there. We got some of the text and... And so I might, I'll do a more systematic look later to see if I can find some more here, but definitely a, a treasure trope of songs. Unfortunately, I don't, I don't know the language. So I really, she doesn't translate it for us. She just leaves it in Creole, which I think even if you have French, you can't really know it. Um, but her intention there is not really to translate it. She, she, this is, these are songs that are used to worship these, these gods. So, anyways, that, along with my previous episode, is my overall review of Tell My Horse. I think it's really worthwhile looking at, and beyond just if you're interested in voodoo. But if you are interested in voodoo, you got to read this book, along with the voodoo sections of Mules and Men. Um, very, very powerful, interesting stuff, especially if you're interested in ra race and class and gender issues in the Caribbean. Great place to go get started in investigating that. And well-written, beautiful. I mean, Zorlin Hurst obviously is brilliant and, and uh, a great writer. And, you know, she's most famous for her novels, but she wrote this other stuff too. So it's, it's worth looking at. Well, anyways, what's next? Well, next I'll be looking at Dust Tracks on the Road, which is her autobiography. I'll spend again two episodes looking at that book. It's her memoirs. And, um, you know, it doesn't cover the last part of your year because she, she, she wrote it in the 40s, so it doesn't cover the last years of her life. She was trying to write a sequel. And, you know, it was already the history sort of her career went sort of belly up in the in the 40s. She became, became unknown and she ended up working as a maid and things. And she tried to revive her career at various times without too much success, obviously. And, you know, she was thinking about writing another part of her memoir. But all we got is dust tracks on the road. Let's date for that. 1942. Um, but... Really, really great stuff. Um, so we'll focus on next time on the first half of that book, which deals mostly with her upbringing, her youth, and then the second half will deal more with her, her career and maturity. So I'm looking forward to talking about Dust Tracks on the Road uh, with you next time. Um, but for now, if you have any thoughts on Zora Hurston's folklore, either Mules and Men or Tell My Horse, please leave a comment below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Um, and that'll be it for now. Um, thanks, as always, for listening, and I'll see you next time. I am told how it must be the hellfire captain. I am told how must be the hellfire captain. He had blue eyes. Lord, Lord, he had blue eyes. Don't you hear them? A cool, cool, but people are red.